following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. This is session number four of our discussion of Inferno. And, um, uh, sorry, I'm laughing at myself because I just did something really funny, which I think I, there are many different ways. My, my broadcast setup here is a little bit complicated. It always has been. And um, I've explored numerous ways uh, to make errors uh, in <laughs> initiating my broadcasting. But tonight, I think I did something that I've never done before just now, which is I started up the entirely wrong GoToWebinar session. So I started it up and... Uh, I just started talking and, and everything, and I'm like, okay, here we are. Welcome back. And I'm like, gosh, everyone's really quiet today. No one's posted anything on the comments. And then I look, and I'm like, oh, it's because I'm the only one here. Why, why, why am I the only one here? And then I realized it was entirely the wrong thing. So anyway, um, hi. Now that I'm actually connecting with people, welcome. Um, uh, and apologize for the delays, as you can see, my brain has in, been in a hundred places here. Um, but uh, we are um, ready, <laughs> ready to focus uh, on Dante for, uh, for a little while here tonight. Um, especially since tonight we are getting to the, we're getting to the real bits, right? I mean, to some extent, almost everything we've looked at up to this point has been kind of preamble in one way or another, right? The, um, all the way through. I mean, meeting famous people in limbo is fun and everything, but uh, of course, the real meat of the hell journey is when we get down into the actual, you know, uh, the the people who are really damned and uh, uh, and every and you know watch the exploration of the of of the the the, the meaty part of hell. Um, so anyway, that's um, uh, so that's where we're starting tonight. We're gonna see if uh, we. Um, my goal is to do five, six, and seven. Cantos five, six, and seven tonight. So we'll see how we do on that. Uh, a couple announcements uh, here first. Um, Ooh, Stephen, make sure I come back to that question. That's a really great... Oh, transition in with that question. Um, because I remember being completely shocked by that the first time as well. Um, uh, so, anyway. But before I do, uh, quick announcements. Uh, so let me sh make sure to share my screen. That would be handy. And... Let me go to the Signum webpage here because there are two things I want to draw your attention to on the Signum webpage. First, I want to draw your attention to our Signum store again uh, because we have uh, here under our support menu, we have our direct link to the Signum store. Uh, and uh, I, just, I want to draw your attention to that because we have a couple new holiday designs uh, that are out for the holidays. Uh, so we've seen a, a few people discovering those already. So I wanted to draw your attention to that. Those are, uh, those are really fun. Um, so that's first thing. Uh, the second thing uh, is quite a big thing. I mentioned it last week, um, but we are uh, we have released our information about our new Signum Academy clubs. Uh, if you go to our Signum Academy page up here, uh, you can see lots of information about our four different Signum Academy clubs. We have our book club, our writing club, our conversation club, and our translation club. Uh, so lots of reading and writing and language work. Um, these are extracurricular clubs. They're designed to be fun clubs for kids. We're, uh, we're running uh, clubs at three different age groups. 
upper elementary from third to fifth grade, uh, middle school from sixth to eighth grade, and then high school from ninth to twelfth grade. So any kid from third grade on, we are happy to uh, uh, to uh, to take in our clubs. Um, it's a really simple program. It works just on a monthly subscription. Our clubs meet twice a week. Uh, they're they're going to be uh, they're going to be they, they start in January, by the way. Uh, really fun. Uh, extracurricular uh, get-togethers to, to, to read and discuss fun books together, uh, to do creative writing workshops, which is what the writing club is. It's going to be creative writing workshops, again, for, uh, uh, for students of, uh, uh, you know, from, from third grade up through high school. Conversation Club is going to be uh, immersive foreign language discussions, so just kind of uh, uh, getting into uh, listening and identifying and learning to speak and converse on a foreign language. Our first language there, we're starting uh, with Spanish. Um, uh, Spanish, of course, not a surprise beginning there, um, but uh, we're starting with Spanish uh, uh, in Conversation Club. We'll be adding more languages over time. Um, but uh, really excited with our uh, Spanish teachers there. And then Translation Club, uh, where kids can begin to uh, learn how to decode runes and, and, and figure out we're going to be starting with, uh, with Anglo-Saxon uh, and Old Norse. So uh, kids can, can uh, kind of bury themselves into, uh, uh, into learning how to figure out these really fun, cool languages. Uh, learning how to read and interpret ancient texts. Uh, really, really fun uh, stuff. So... Um, so yes, yeah, somebody was teasing me. Are you going to do Germanic philology for kids? Heck yeah, we're going to do Germanic philology for kids. Uh, so uh, these are now these are now open for registration. You can see our registration link down here. The pricing is really simple. Uh, the subscription fee is ninety dollars a month per kid. Um, you know, and that's you know it comes to about ten bucks per instructional hour. Um, almost all of the you know price of our uh, clubs goes to well. Pretty much all of it goes to uh, supporting our teachers and our and our support staff, uh, supporting the people who make these clubs possible. So uh, really, really excited about that. We offer discounts for you know uh, for large families. We have uh, group packages if you want to uh, sign on with a whole group of folks. Um, lots of uh, lots of opportunities. We also have uh, sponsorship possibilities. If your company, you know, if you're involved in a company that would like to sponsor, say, for instance, you'd like to sponsor uh, kids to be able to participate in this, right? So the way we do the sponsorship program is that we have, you know, the corporation will pay for like a, a, a little more than half, essentially, uh, of this so that kids, local kids or, you know, whatever you kind of designate, uh, maybe kids of, of employees or maybe local kids in the community uh, can uh, can sign up for, you know, a drastically reduced uh, price, making it more of available for, for more people. Um, so we have that available, again, for corporations and for individuals, people who would like to sponsor kids uh, to be able to kind of make this possible for more people. Um, we would, uh, we'd love to encourage that. So you can, uh, you can see if you go to our Signum Academy page here, to the, to the pricing page, um, information on our discounts and everything, and then down at the bottom, uh, just to reach out uh, to uh, email us if you would like to set up a sponsorship. We'd love to, um, uh, to talk to folks about that. So that's our new program, Signum Academy Clubs. Very excited about this. Uh, so spread the word. You know, if you know uh, folks and, um, uh, you know, families who are, um, 
uh, you know, I know so many families are really struggling. A lot of kids just don't have access to extracurricular stuff. You know, they're doing school from home and they're kind of trapped in the house with, uh, you know, not, not nothing like the wealth of activities that they, you know, are used to being able to do. And especially a lot of sort of academically enriching extracurricular activities, you know, which were often done at school after school are not happening anymore. So we're, um, um, uh, uh, we're 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 definitely um, uh, uh, really happy to kind of step in and fill that gap here. So that's our our that's that's the the big announcement tonight uh, that I wanted to share. So um, all right, let us get back into Inferno now. So Stephen's question that I mentioned earlier on was why don't the circles of hell map to the deadly sins? It seems at first like they might. Right. I mean, first, okay. It's like, all right, we're lust, lust first, and and then we get to something else, which is eventually revealed as gluttony, and and then I guess it's avarice. Looks like avarice, mostly avarice, um, and then we get the sullen, and it's it's, but it breaks down. It breaks down quickly after that. Right. It's just what we don't see uh, is. A clear like the seven deadly sins being punished as the seven deadly sins, right? We don't see the seven circles of hell that we might expect to see based on uh, traditional teaching, um, and um, as usual, <laughs> I don't know exactly why, um, but I do know what exactly he's doing here, um, and that is he's not following Catholic doctrine; he's following Aristotle. Here, it's his Aristotle's moral scheme that he's primarily following in hell. Now, here's the really interesting thing. When we get to purgatory, guess how many terraces on the mountain of purgatory there are? Seven, right? And those follow the seven deadly sins straight up. No worries, right? Not only do they follow the seven deadly sins, um, like, you know, one deadly sin per terrace, just kind of like you would expect, like you might have expected in hell, um, but they also are kind of grouped together in the traditional ways that the seven deadly sins are grouped together. So, I mean, it's, it just seems all very, um, very natural. Um, that seems to me important, right? That he, uh, so it's not that he's just like issuing the, you know, the, the concept of the seven deadly sins, right? It's not like he's, he's objecting uh, to the seven deadly sins and saying, I don't think that's a good way to categorize sins. He does categorize sins that way. And in fact, as I say, uh, in highly traditional ways, the seven deadly sins being traditionally grouped uh, into uh, three groups of sins, right? Does anybody know the three groups of sins, by the way? The seven deadly sins fall into three categories, Three, three, and one. One of them is all by itself. And these follow the passage in, uh, what is it, Peter? First Peter, I want to say. The three enemies of man are uh, uh, the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? Yeah, there we go. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So the seven deadly sins are divided into the sins of the, the sin of the world. That's avarice. It's all by itself. Right? Greed. And then you've got the sins of the flesh and the sins of the devil. And the sins of the flesh are lust, sloth, and gluttony. And the sins of the devil are pride, wrath, and envy. And so, again, this is like exactly what we see uh, in purgatory, just kind of uh, from a moral standpoint, what we would have expected to see. Um, 
But um, so, Stephen, it is interesting, isn't it? Right, that the in this way, the seven deadly sins kind of map onto like the Christian side in a sense. And remember, every one hundred percent of the residents in purgatory are going to heaven. Right, they're all saved. Those are all saved souls in purgatory. Um, so it's interesting that it's the saved souls that are divided according to the strictly Christian system, Stephen, as you're suggesting. Um, Whereas in hell, you know, which is chock full of pagans, not exclusively, of course, as we see, we meet uh, several Italians uh, this evening, right? Several of Dante's contemporaries he meets down in hell, um, as he will do uh, many times. So it's not like they're only pagans down there, um, but uh, the the place which is sort of outside of, um, you know, kind of the the schema, right? In a sense, right? The, the 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 you know, for those who are outsiders, you know, this is like the, you know, there in the outer darkness. It's structured according to a, a pagan structure. But here's the thing: that correlation. I mean. Yes, like, you know, many of the pagans, many of the unsaved pagans, which, by the way, that word pagan uh, is used in the Middle Ages very generically to mean any pre-Christian. The only pre-Christians who are not called pagans are the Old Testament Jews. Like, nobody calls King David a pagan. Right, even though he's before he's you know before Christ, he's before Christianity. Uh, like the Romans were pagans, right? The Egyptians are pagans. The Greeks are pagans. Um, but the uh, but so yeah, don't get too up in arms about like what the word paganus means and 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 all that kind of thing. It's 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 used um, as I say quite quite generically uh, in that sense. But anyway. Um, so you could say, you know, most of those, most of the pagans are there in, in hell. So it's uh, it's organized under a pagan system. But let's not forget who is the artificer of hell, right? God is the artificer of hell, as the inscription above the gates of hell reminded us, as as it were, the voice of hell itself reminded us uh, at the beginning of Canto Three. Um, so this is this is a system of divine justice. So the fact that this system of divine justice that is being laid out in hell is organized along Aristotelian principles, is not a kind of slap at Aristotle. To the contrary, right? It would seem instead to be an enormously high high compliment to Aristotle, whom we saw sitting in state uh, in limbo, right? The philosopher amongst all the other pagan philosophers who were also there with him uh, in limbo, such as Socrates and, and Plato and others. Seneca, I think, was there, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, but anyway, uh, so um, so it's a high compliment to Aristotle. Um, basically, he is saying, remember that, you know, I was saying before about how uh, pointing out the places like where Dante is making explicit parallels to, um, where he's making explicit parallels to Virgil, right, to the Aeneid. Um, and he's not doing it in a merely kind of one-upsmanship kind of way, right? I mean, there's there is a sense in which, especially given the way the relationship between Dante and Virgil is complicated in this way. On the one hand, Dante is the student and Virgil is the master, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, he has made that role 
you know, that, 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 that allocation of roles really clear among the two of them on the one hand. But on the other hand, Virgil is not saved, right? I mean, Virgil's, Virgil lives in limbo now. Um, he didn't, he's, he did not have the revelation of the truth. Um, Dante is being given the revelation of the truth. So not only is, does he have the benefit of revelation um, in the sense of being a Christian, right? Um, and again, this is very much how they would have talked about it in the Middle Ages. Um, but he specifically is being, I mean, he's being brought along on this journey. He's being called from heaven, right? The authority, we went through that, right? You know, uh, Virgin Mary to St. Lucia to uh, Beatrice to Virgil uh, on to Dante. He's been being called and he's being brought upwards, right? From out of the darkness in the dark wood that he was in, down through hell, and then all the way up eventually into paradise where Virgil can't come, right? So, on the one hand, Virgil is the master and Dante is the student. On the other hand, Dante is the privileged one. And Virgil, especially Virgil's poem that was written before his death, Virgil knows now, right? He knows the truth now. He can't see paradise, but he knows the truth. Um, and so he himself, Virgil himself, the shade of Virgil, sees much further than he did in his life. Right. And so therefore, there's this like big asterisk placed next to the Aeneid, especially Aeneas's trip to the underworld, which is, of course, the like primary model, you know, the, the primary text that's always kind of lurking in the background behind Dante's description of his journey. But again, it has this big asterisk next to it. Right. Asterisk footnote. But Virgil didn't really know what he was talking about. Right. But Virgil was wrong because he was a pagan and he didn't really know what the afterlife was like. Um, so um, uh, so that's, as I say, it's complicated. Therefore, the relationship between Virgil and Dante is complicated. But one of the things that I was trying to point out um, last time with with Karen, the 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 you know, Charon, the uh, and I've heard it pronounced both ways. By the way, people were asking me, and I've never been really definitive on that. It seems to be a matter of taste, from what I hear, uh, just based from what I've observed. Um, when the um, the ferryman of the you know of, of of the river, which is not the river Styx, when the ferryman of the river uh, approaches them and, and, and like alludes back to, you know, it, you know, it does the speech, which is so much you know, like the speech he gives in Virgil um, and seems as, as if you know, almost like he remembers, you know, the trip of Aeneas. Right. Um, anyway, the point I was making there is that he's not saying or he's going out of his way not to say, yeah, well, whatever you do, like, don't believe the Aeneid. Right. The Aeneid is all bunk, right? It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's pagan foolishness. Um, I'm going to tell you the real story of the Christian afterlife, which will, of course, turn out to be quite unlike, uh, what, you know, a pagan who did not have the benefit of revelation thought. And that's, that's exactly what Dante does not do, at least not universally, right? He does not say, chuck it out. Instead, he says, look, he was right. He was right about many things. There are many true insights in what he put. Now, he's he's tweaking them 
right? He's correcting them all the way along. Uh, most notably, as we saw last time, with the 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 kind of anti-hell of the uncommitted, right? Uh, yeah, I talked about how in the Aeneid, the folks who are lurking outside and kind of hoping they could get on the boat but are not allowed on the boat are people who are unburied, right? And Dante corrects that, right? And he, instead of having it be a sort of this sort of external, um, this uh, sort of ceremonial, and most importantly, utterly disconnected to the particular choices of those souls. It's not their fault they didn't get buried, right? Uh, but it is the fault of those who are in Dante's anti-hell, right? Those who are outside on the other side of the river. Um, so he, he, he introduces a major shift, and yet he does it within the paradigm that Virgil has established so that it comes off as a kind of clarification, right? A kind of correction rather than a, a mere reversal, rather than a mere scrapping of what came before. So, Stephen, I'm coming back around long ways uh, to your question. I think that this is it's a similar effect that he's doing with Aristotle, right? Why is hell organized according to Aristotelian principles? Because Aristotle was right. Because Aristotle was really smart, um, and he knew a thing or two about ethics, right? He his ethics system is not wrong, right? Like God agrees with Aristotle is like what essentially what Dante is saying, um, uh, and again, I think it's really important to remember that element. There's um, since. Really since like the 18th century, I think. It's really since the Enlightenment, um, of which I am no very particular fan. Um, since the Enlightenment, which I almost always feel inclined to put air quotes around, but that's a piece of satire on my part, uh, from, from which I will try to restrain myself. Um, since the Enlightenment, things have kind of shifted around such that there is this idea that, you know, Christian teaching and pagan teaching have always been like either or, right? You know, that it's, um, and I've he heard often heard um, modern Christians speak as if the kind of integration of, um, I've heard Christians speak this way, I've also even more often, come to think of it, um, heard uh, non-Christians or anti-Christians uh, in the modern world speak this way, as if the sort of accommodation between Catholic doctrine and uh, pagan teaching that was so prevalent in the Middle Ages was a kind of... Um, so modern Christians will speak as if like it's it's always been a given, right? That it's one or the other. That like uh, you know to believe in Christian doctrine means chucking out all of that pagan stuff wholesale. That is not true, and was would have been viewed as crazy um, in the Middle Ages. Um, on the other side, on the the secular side, people often characterize the medieval Catholic Church as accommodating in these sort of like shrewd ways, right? Um, as if like their whole goal were merely to position themselves, and so like the kind of 
uh, sort of syncretistic approach that uh, the church seemed to take was like one kind of one big sort of scam, uh, essentially, that they were trying to pull. Um, and both modern perspectives wholly miss the spirit uh, of medieval thought on this point. Um, the thing that you have to hold firmly in mind when trying to understand the attitude towards the ancients, the attitudes towards the pagans in the medieval in medieval society and even in the medieval church, especially in the medieval church in some ways. The thing that you have to hold in mind is the immense respect in that they placed in them and they meant it. They weren't just giving lip service. They really believed that those who lived before them were greater and smarter than they were. And that includes the pagans. Yes, the Christians have advantages. And yes, there are times when <clears throat> they're in direct conflict and you choose, you side with God, right? You, you choose revelation uh, over that. You go with the Bible where it contradicts them. But, in, but you instead, in general, kind of stand back in awe looking at people like Aristotle. Um, right, looking at people like Aristotle who say, who figured all this stuff out, right, without the benefit, right? They'd never read the Bible. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. And yet Aristotle, like, man, he figured out all this stuff, right? How can you even be that wise uh, without <laughs> the benefit, right, of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's why in the Middle Ages, they would, you know, talk about being, you know, dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, they are talking, often when they're talking that way, they're talking about the old Christians, like, you know, the, the patristic fathers, like Aristotle, and not Aristotle, sorry, I mean, like Augustine is what I meant to say, uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and others. But, um, but they also worked that way, spoke that way about uh, the wisdom of the ancients and folks like Virgil are certainly high on that list of those for whom they had that kind of that kind of um, uh, that kind of respect. So Gerald asks, does that mean that Aristotle was divinely inspired? Well, yes. Of course he was divine. They would have said, yes, he was divinely inspired. God is the father of lights, as the New Testament tells us. So anyone who has a clear perception of how the world works, uh, you know, how the universe works, is inspired by God. Again, see that phrase, inspired by God? Modern Christians mean something quite different, especially modern Protestants, I would say, I would add, mean something quite different by that phrase than anyone would have meant in the Middle Ages. Uh, in general, in general. Um, but um, um, so anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, OK, good. Um, <laughs> Karita's with uh, 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 teasing me for saying that uh, God agrees with Aristotle, not Aristotle agrees with God. Uh, yeah, no, but that's I, I, I meant to say it that way, Karita. I did. Because um, because in a sense, that's the effect, right? Um, that is the effect that reading the Inferno has, especially since it's starting off along what looked like seven deadly sins lines, right? Not only do we start with two of the deadly sins, we start with two of the associate. We start with two of the sins of the flesh, right? We start with lust and then we go to gluttony. So what comes next? Everybody thinks they know what comes next, right? So if the second circle is lust and the third circle is gluttony, the fourth circle obviously is going to be 
sloth, right? That's what comes next, a third of the sins of the flesh. And then it doesn't happen, right? And it's like, wait a second. I'm not saying it's like an incredible shocker or a, you know, a, a, you know this kind of bizarre expose. But I do think that there, that, that is a, a sort of a kind of moment of surprise. Um, that moment when they encounter Plutus is that's when the surprise is sprung. No, Plutus. Okay, so we're skipping sloth then. All right, that's interesting. Why are we skipping sloth? Um, and so the, the, the kind of discovery creator is like, oh my goodness, Aristotle was right. <laughs> it turns out, turns out God agrees with Aristotle, right? That, that uh, Aristotle is being proven right by, uh, you know, as we travel through, as we travel through hell. Uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah, good. So let's, um, let's jump into the actual text because we didn't get so far as actually meeting any lustful folks in the circle of lust. We uh, talked about Minos uh, sending folks to different places by wrapping his unexpected tail around himself, uh, but we didn't get much further than that. So here we have now his actual first encounter with tortured souls. Well, other than the ones being tortured outside, you know, the, the, the river... Now notes of desperation have begun to overtake my hearing. Now I come where mighty lamentation beats against me. I reached a place where every light is muted, which bellows like the sea beneath a tempest when it is battered by opposing winds. The hellish hurricane, which never rests, drives on the spirits with its violence, wheeling and pounding. It harasses them. When they come up against the ruined slope, then there are cries and wailing and lament, and there they curse the force of the divine. I learned that those who undergo this torment are damned because they sinned within the flesh, subjecting reason to the rule of lust. Okay. Um, observations. What do we learn about the second circle from this? This is our introduction to the actual circle itself proper, right? Now, um, I want to... Um, I want to caution us here, and I've already broken this rule like a bunch of times tonight, so it's more of a guideline than a rule. But um, uh, I would say, again, try to focus on not only what Dante says, but how he presents things. Um, I talked about that twitchy impulse to go and read the notes like whenever you come across something that you don't fully understand uh, in the text and how I'd like you to resist that. Here's the other thing I'd like you to resist. Try to resist, if you can, contextualizing. <laughs> right? That is, you come to a circle, you come to a new circle, and it's really tempting to be like, okay, wait, let me look up which circle this is so I know what circle it is, Right? Okay, this is this is the circle of this is the circle of lust, right? Good. Okay, now I can read the read the description. Don't do that. How Dante unfolds that, I think, is often really really interesting, right? So one of the things that I want to be focusing on is not just how does Dante describe this sin, this sin. Like, given that it's a sin, he doesn't hang a sign to label them all, right? And often how he brings us into it, how he discloses what the sin is, sometimes 
the people are described first. Sometimes their torment is described first. Sometimes we're, it's revealed right away. Sometimes it's not revealed for a long time. Um, what are the effects of some of those different choices, different presentation choices that Dante gives to us, right? Um, so, uh, anyway, that's... Um, uh, uh, that's the, the... So, with that in mind, what are we told? about the second circle here. What do we see? We hear about, the first thing we hear is the suffering of the shades there, right? The mighty lamentation, the notes of desperation. His hearing is overtaken by notes of desperation. Mighty lamentation is beating against him, right? There's this almost uh, uh, tactile um, experience of sound, right? The sound of the sufferers in the second circle. Um, lots of um, air imagery, right? Um, I reached a place where every light is muted, which bellows like the sea beneath a tempest. When it is battered by opposing winds, the hellish hurricane, which never rests, drives on the spirits with its violence. So the tormenting wind, there is this tempestuous wind that circulates continuously through the second circle. Um, battering things. Just, just as, So first, remember, we had the mighty lamentation, the sound of the notes of desperation beating on him, right? And then he looks and sees these tempestuous winds beating on the shades, right? Driving on the spirits with their violence. Okay. Um... So the punishment, and I pause before that word, because it's not like, look, I'm not going to be shy about saying those in hell are being punished, like punishment is going on. Um, but I'm really interested in patterns. This is one of the things that always fascinates me most about Inferno, um, about all of Dante, really is looking at the relationship between what is happening with these shades and what they did, right? What their sins are. Um, I learned that those who undergo this torment are damned because they sinned within the flesh, subjecting reason to the rule of lust. Um, so, Carita, yes, we are referring explicitly to uh, uh, sexual lust here. Hang on a second. I'm checking my text, my old, my old battered paperback that I've had since undergrad. Um, let's see. Hang on. Let, let me. I'm just looking at the Italian, which I don't have here. Let's see. Uh, okay. The rule of lust. Got it. All right. Here we are. Mm, yeah, I don't know those Italian words well enough to comment on them. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. My look at the... My, again, I've told you, I'm a very bad Italian scholar. If anybody else knows more than I... Uh, but I'm pretty sure... It, I mean, it certainly becomes more explicit... This is definitely about 
sexual desire. So I know, Karita, that you're thinking of the discussions that we've had recently. This was in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, wasn't it? Uh, about lust and how the word lust, when used in English in the Middle Ages, uh, was a much more general word. And uh, so the Middle English word lust or list, uh, which was another version of it, um, meant um, just meant desire. Uh, kind of generically, uh, and it can be good. Depends on what you're desiring, right? And the extent to which you're desiring it. Um, but this uh, translation, yeah, yeah, um, I think is it's 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 on the one hand, it is clear that the context is going to make it very explicit that we're talking about sexual desire here. But William, that is really interesting. Uh, the Longfellow translation, he says, is. Um, um, uh, uses the word appetite instead of lust. That seems to me perfectly appropriate, right? That, after all, is exactly what he emphasizes there in line 39, right? What is the problem here? The problem here is not illicit sex. That is not how he introduces this, right? This is not you had sex in the wrong way and with the wrong people and are therefore damned. Why are these people damned? because they subjected reason to the rule of lust or William of appetite, right? Um, Longfellow there is thinking of the more traditional um, general um, medieval construction, which says basically that's what, that's what original sin is. Original sin is uh, that appetite kind of wins over. Uh, Milton knew this, um, Paradise Lost readers, what do Adam, what happens with Adam and Eve immediately after that? What's the first thing after that? What are the first thing they do after they eat the fruit? They eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then what? Yeah, they drop into the bushes and get it on, is what happens. Um, and the reason that they do that is that their reason is no longer driving the bus. Once they sin, once they eat the fruit of the tree, they then their reason no longer is in control of the apparatus and their appetites take over. Um, uh, so that's, that's uh, what, now again, that's what Milton says. I'm not taking that as evidence for what uh, Dante is saying. I am just talking about this overall thing that Dante is pointing to, which is the war between appetite and reason. Um, for right reason, Ratio recta, to be in charge of the system, is how things are supposed to be. Everything is supposed to be subjected to reason. If you have everything, if you have appetite subjected to reason, you're going to operate appropriately, right? You screw up when your appetite is ruling uh, and is ruling and your reason is not driving the bus. Um, that is what they did wrong. They subjected reason to the rule of lust. Um, so he's... So on the one hand, Karita, is he talking about sexual lust? Yes, explicitly. But is he talking about sex? No, not really. That's not the first emphasis in any case, right? Again, it's not about you had the wrong kind of sex that... That, that's it's not about that. It's not about punishment for sex. It's about the right relationship between reason and desire. And if you 
chose appetite, if you indulged appetite instead of reason, over reason, that's, um, uh, that's, that's the issue. That's the issue. Um, we do meet some famous example, or at least he sort of, they get pointed to, right? We get, we get a list. This is common, right? We will often get lists like this of uh, sort of celebrity um, folks who live here. And it's, they're often a very interesting crew. She is Semiramis, of whom we read that she was Ninus's wife and his successor. She held the land the sultan now commands. That other spirit killed herself for love, and she betrayed the ashes of Sicaeus. The wanton Cleopatra follows next. See Helen, for whose sake so many years of evil had to pass. See great Achilles, who finally met love in his last battle. See Paris, Tristan. And he pointed out and named to me more than a thousand shades departed from our life because of love. No sooner had I heard my teacher name the ancient ladies and the knights than pity seized me and I was like a man astray. So the list first. Um, <laughs> those of you who know... Let me address the weird one first. Those of you who know Homer are going to be scratching your heads right now. Right? And be like, Achilles... How is Achilles associated with lust? And in what sense did Achilles meet love in his last battle? I mean, like, it's like, I've read the Aeneid and, you know, um, uh, no, <laughs> that's not, that's not what happened. Um, so l let me explain. He is referring to a story about Achilles, which is not an, remember, nobody read Homer. Dante didn't read Homer. Nobody read Homer, right? People read paraphrases of Homer. People read stories from Homer, but we don't know Greek. Um, uh, and there were no, like, really good uh, verse translations of Homer uh, in the Middle Ages. So um, when people in the Middle Ages are alluding to events or characters from the Trojan War, try not to think of Homer and the way that Homer depicts them, because they didn't know it. They didn't know that. Um, they are way more likely to be thinking of them as they were depicted in Virgil, very much more likely. Um, uh, and um, they are, uh, but also in some of these other stories. So there is this story. It's an obscure story, and nobody in the modern world knows it at all anymore, because everybody now knows that it was not a really credible like it was, they would, it didn't have a very credible source. But anyway, there was this story in circulation that Achilles was killed by Paris. He was ambushed and killed by Paris because he, like, that he was sent a letter by one of Priam's daughters, if I think I'm, if I'm remembering the story properly, and he was, like, seduced into coming to a clandestine meeting, uh, you know, and he was, like, ambushed and killed, and that's how Achilles died. So, like, totally non-Homer story there. But that's why Achilles is here. Uh, because Dante has read that story and desire was his downfall. Right? He, 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 uh, um, and so therefore, that that's what these people have in, what do these people have in common? These people primarily have in common that their passion led to their deaths. Achilles, through this 
sort of apocryphal story of Achilles, uh, his passion, you know, uh, I'd, I'd, for the daughter of Priam led to his death. Cleopatra's passion led to her death, right, to her suicide by asp. Um, that other spirit killed herself for love and she betrayed the ashes of Sichaeus we're talking about? This is one of those that everybody would know. Um, that this is not a circumlocution to be coy. Um, she's talking about... Uh, he's talking about who? Dido. Dido from the Aeneid. Um, yeah, yeah. The ashes of Sichaeus. Sichaeus is her first husband. She's a widow, and she's like, I'm remaining faithful to my first husband until Aeneas comes along, and then it's kind of not her fault and whatever. But anyway, she betrayed the ashes of Sichaeus, and then she kills herself, right, afterwards uh, in passion. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that, Stephen. Ask that question again in a little bit, a few weeks. Uh, Stephen is thinking about, the, like, aren't we going to meet suicides somewhere else, and why aren't these people here? Great question. Um, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what we think when we get there. Um, uh, Semiramis, by the way, she was, she is named first because she is one of the icons of lust, especially of female lust, of extravagant sexual desire. She has a reputation uh, for utter sexual licentiousness. Um, she was the ruler in Babylon, and she uh, uh, and she was uh, uh, famous for basically like legalizing any form of sexual indulgence, including incest and. Uh, so Semiramis is like a byword in the Middle Ages. She is a uh, she is a, a, a sort of a paragon of unrestrained and uh, un uh, totally unprincipled sexual lust. Um, but um, okay, just, just uh, that's why she's mentioned first because like everybody in the by mentioning her first, he's giving a pretty clear signal. So Karita, this is one of the passages I was thinking of when I said he's going to make it really clear that he's talking about sexual lust and sexual sin. Uh, that that's what the primary reason how like he's like first Semiramis, everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, well Semiramis, yeah sure, okay, right now we know what we're talking about, right? Um, uh, and then uh, you know. Dido, okay, right. That's an interesting one. No, she's not. She's no Semiramis, right? You know, she wasn't just like famous for, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, unbridled sexual uh, uh, profligacy. But um, like Cleopatra, like if we went right from Semiramis to Cleopatra, Cleopatra had a bit of a reputation uh, for sexual um, uh, appetite. So if we went straight from Semiramis to Cleopatra, it would sound like it was just that kind of thing, right? And, you know, people who are just like, you know, all sex all the time without restraint or, uh, or, or uh, order of any kind. But putting Dido in the middle um, is interesting, right? And it kind of changes that because that's not Dido. That's definitely not Dido's story, nor is it Helen's story. Um, but Helen... Who, for whose sake so many years of evil had to pass, right? Helen, she chose passion, right? She eloped with Paris. Um, 
remember the guidance that he gave us at the beginning, right? Those who subjected reason to the rule of lust. And that's what we're seeing. With Semiramis, she was literally a ruler, right? She was the one who was passing laws. And she passed laws to, uh, which were like to uh, promote passion, essentially, over reason. Um, that's very bad. That puts her at the top of the list. Um, Dido made that same call, chose passion over reason. Her reason told her to stay faithful to Sicaeus. That's the decision she had made, and she chucked it out the window when Aeneas came along. Wanton Cleopatra, enough said. Helen, also someone who chucked things out the window for passion. Achilles, according who, according to the apocryphal story, chucked things out the window for passion and died as a consequence. Paris, enough said. Tristan, now, he's the kind of which of these things is not like the other in this list. Uh, that he, He's uh, the modern in this list. Um, uh, yeah, he was, he, was, he was the modern in this list. Um, uh, oh, was... Uh, Gerald... Dante is first and foremost, when he's thinking about Helen, is first and foremost going to think about Virgil's Helen. Um, Virgil's Helen does not come off well at all. Um, if you are tend to think of Helen, and if you're a reader of Homer, you might well think about Helen as a sort of a sympathetic figure. You know, if you're if you sort of think that you know Helen is kind of the victim here, um, I, that is not. Virgil's Helen. Uh, and so I think that that's the one that Dante is definitely thinking about there. Um, uh, Takako, has uh, Lancelot been invented yet? He absolutely has. Um, uh, where's Lancelot? William was wondering too. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, there are more than a thousand other shades there. Um, uh, I don't think Lancelot's going to get off necessarily. Um, but yeah, Tristan, that Tristan, um, uh, uh, Tristan from, of Tristan and Isolde, he is, uh, uh, he is definitely here too. Um, Tristan, though, is the one who is, in a sense, in, to me, most intriguing, because Tristan is the kind of bridge. All the rest of these are ancient and classical figures. Tristan is a modern figure. Now, a modern literary figure, yes. Not a historical figure, necessarily, but that's okay. He's a modern figure, but more importantly, he is one of the figures of courtly love. Tristan and Isolde are two of the most famous courtly lovers in all of European tradition. Lancelot and Guinevere are two others, certainly. Um, but Tristan and Isolde uh, are uh, very famous courtly lovers, that a courtly lover should remember what I said about courtly love, right? What happens to you when you are a courtly lover? You are ennobled, right? It is a path of moral improvement. And in Dante's case, it certainly is going to be one. His relationship with Beatrice is certainly having that effect on him. Not so Tristan. Um, he is drawing a line in the sand here. On the one hand, he is saving courtly love. Dante, I mean, right? Dante is transforming 
courtly love into a spiritual thing. And at the same time, he is rejecting the traditional version. I said last time, don't think that courtly love stories are just about flowery speeches uh, and admiring the lady from a distance. All courtly love stories are focused on getting the woman into bed. That is always the point. The consummation in the final act of Venus is the centerpiece of almost every work of courtly love throughout the Middle Ages. It starts to change a little bit towards the end, but not really. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, that never actually goes away. Um, so, Dante, but we see Dante distancing himself from that. Tristan is in hell. And why is he in hell? He is in hell for being a courtly lover. Well, anyway, that kind of courtly lover, right? His, he, his, if you subject passion over reason, you're out. Now, notice what he's done here, right? Notice what he's done. Um, oh, Carolyn knew Tristan and his old, uh, you know, no, they, they, they consummated their love with great prejudice on multiple occasions. It, different versions of the story do it differently, but um, um, uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, that's uh, again. I'm not saying there exists no version of the story in which it wasn't consummated. There probably does, but I don't know a single medieval version in which it wasn't. Um, they, uh, their love is uh, consummated on multiple occasions. Um, uh, yep, yep. Um, but um, anyway, okay. But again, the thing to notice. What is the effect of love? It elevates you, morally improves you, right? And how? What is it that does it? Passion, right? It is desire that brings you out of yourself. And No. Dante says, Dante puts the smack down on that right away, right? It is not. The passion of love, that passion which goes against reason, that element of the story, and honestly, it's like one of the only elements of courtly love that has survived almost uninterrupted into like modern Hollywood, right? I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of... I mean, there's you can see, if you know a lot of courtly love stuff and you look at, like, you know, Hollywood romances as they're depicted in modern films and stuff, you can see ways in which the medieval courtly love system is the ancestor of, of, of you know, a lot of those ideas. But it's a distant ancestor, and the child, you know, the, the, the descendant doesn't look a whole lot like it, right? There are many differences. But one thread, which is consistent all the way through is the idea that once love grips you, you're helpless, right? This idea of like, like you're just, when you fall in love, man, like it's over. You can't fight that. You can, nobody can fight that. Nobody can fight being in love. Um, whether you're Dido and baby Cupid is sitting on your lap and stabbing you with his arrow and making you fall in love with Aeneas, uh, or whether you're Tristan and Isolde, Drinking love potions, right? Literally, physically drinking love potions and falling in love with each other that way. Whatever it was, the idea, you know, however the concept is kind of realized, you know, sort of uh, embodied in the story, um, the idea that love is this irresistible passion, 
right that sweeps over you and and you can't do anything about it it is not in your control that is a dominant element of love stories still to this day people still talk that way to this day about love and falling in love um uh and um dante in this canto remember began the canto by saying nope nope that is that is the sinful element that thread is the bad part if you permit your appetite your desire to overwhelm your reason if you subjugate reason to appetite to lust you're lost that's what losing looks like right and that so putting tristan in there is kind of like the that reference to reason and appetite is the like shocking intro right the inclusion of tristan in the list of condemned lustful folks is the serious warning shot right and then we're going to get the full attack on the traditional some of the most in their way sacred sacred within the context of this tradition ideas of love are going to come under assault in the rest of this canto this is so we get paolo and francesca uh, Francesca is the one who speaks, right? She's the one who talks about this. So there are these two people that he meets. Now, these are historical figures. Um, this is a, a slight contemporary political scandal, essentially. Um, this is somebody who died, I think, Francesca died in, uh, in Palo also, um, uh, died in, I think, 1285, like 15 years before the time of the uh, Inferno. So this is, this is recent history, right? Um, and it was a, it was a, you know, so the, 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 these were recognizable political figures who had had this affair and then died. And she's telling their story. Love that can quickly seize the gentle heart took hold of him because of the fair body taken from me. Paolo fell in love with her because she was hot. How that was done still wounds me. Love that releases no beloved from loving took hold of me so strongly through his beauty that, as you see, it has not left me yet. Love led the two of us unto one death. Cana waits for him who took our life. Cana is the name of the seventh circle of hell, or sorry, ninth circle of hell. That's the bottommost one. Um, they were both murdered um, by her husband, his brother. She cheated on her husband with his brother, um, excuse me, sorry. I meant to say that the younger brother of the bad husband and the young, beautiful wife fell desperately in love one with the other uh, in the grip of this irresistible passion, as so often happens in marriage. And then they were cruelly slain by uh, her jealous husband, his jealous brother, who is obviously the bad guy and is going to end up in the ninth circle of hell. This story, it, it's like it could be every courtly love story, practically. Um, the young wife of the older husband who is not very nice or positively horrible, alternatively, and the uh, fetching and compassionate younger brother slash servant slash 
whatever wandering errant knight uh and then you know and the jealous husband and yeah all very sort of standard right now carolyn the important thing here who's talking who's talking here who's saying all this stuff love that releases no beloved from loving francesca's talking Right. Um, as you can see, as you see, it has not left me yet. The love for Paolo has not left her yet. Um, how can we see that? How can we see that? Well, in a couple different ways, right? We can see it because they're still, like, embracing, right? Look how much we love each other. Yes. What else is happening? If we were to see her, as she's inviting us to imagine, seeing her, what, what would we see? Her and Paolo? What would we see? What were we told back in the first slide? About the second circle? What's going on in the second circle? What's happening to the shades in the second circle? Yep, he's right next to her. Two of them together. And what are they uh, what are they up to? What are they doing? What's happening to them? Yeah, they're being buffeted and tumbled around by the huge tempestuous wind, which is whipping all of the shades around, right? As we can see, her love has not left her yet. She is still embracing Paolo. As we can see, because she's being tumbled around the second circle of hell, love has not left her yet, right? Um, it has a double edge here, if you see what I mean by that. There's an irony in her words. I find Canto V. Let me say this a different way. I find the reception history of Canto V to be one of the most fascinating reception histories of any of um, the comedy, any parts of the comedy. Many of you probably know, Paolo and Francesca have been uh, this, I mean, there are operas, there are paintings, there are poems, there is, oh man, like Dante's depiction of the love story of Paolo and Francesca um, has been, has inspired, like this made them the romantic hero and heroine of you know, many, many, many romantic and moving treatments over the course of many centuries since this was written. And I can't help but think that every single one of those who respond that way are utterly missing the point of this canto. There is 
a disconnect between what she, the perspective that she describes. There is a deliberate, she's, she's, she's the hero of her own story, right? And the story that she tells, it's meant to sound like a traditional courtly love story. It's meant for you to be like, oh, that is such a beautiful love story. You're meant to respond that way. Like, that's the point, right? He tells this, which is a, a very kind of typical love story, and he tells, he has her tell it very beautifully, right? Um, but the whole point, they're in hell. They are damned for this. They are being punished. And how are they punished? Why are they tumbled around? Why are the shades tumbled around with the wind? Why are the shades tumbled around with the wind? Why should the lustful have that happen to them? How does that make sense? Notice I'm operating under a premise based on previous readings of the text that it does make sense. Um, this is not just an arbitrary thing. And by the way, this is important. Berolini mentions this in her commentary in the Digital Dante Project. Um, if you go to descriptions of what happens to the lustful, those who are guilty of sexual sin, in most medieval discussions of the afterlife, what you will almost always find are people who are having their genitals tortured. That's almost always what you will find. Um, that, like the, 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 the pleasure, the illicit pleasure of, of immoral sex is being punished in the afterlife by pain sexualized, generally, almost always genital-oriented pain afflicted as a consequence, as a punishment for the sin that was committed. That's generally what you find in medieval treatments of this kind of thing. That's not what Dante shows at all. He doesn't give us anything like that. In fact, there's nothing explicitly sexualized at all about their punishment. Um, yes. Um, I, agree, I agree with several. Yes, Mary says the wind is passion. Stephen says they have no control over their own courses. Um, just as their passions tumbled them in their lives, so now the wind is tumbling them. They, are, they were not in control, right? They... They subjugated reason to, to, to passion and so and let their passions just drive them wherever their passions would lead them without reining in their passions with their reason, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, and now that buffeting continues. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so... It is, um, and yes, Carrie, you're right. I'm not, I, I said not explicitly sexualized. 
all I meant, Carrie, was that okay, there, there's not nothing like the 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 genital torture. Like that, it's not. There are the words that he uses describing the winds, are. He uses sexual words there. I think Carrie, the point again, the point there is to to make that that, uh, uh, to make that connection explicit, right? Um, but, um, but exactly by abandoning their reason and allowing their desires to just take them to generally the destruction that their desires to, most of them led to destruction in their lives like the list that we saw right um, all of them their, for all of them 100% of them their passion has led them to destruction in the sense that it has brought them to hell right and eternal punishment down here in hell but what is the punishment it is not retribution for the crimes that they committed it is, it's not a measured retribution. Notice the pattern. It is a continuation, right? You chose this. You chose to let your passions buffet you around, right? And carry you wherever they would. Therefore, in eternity, you will be buffeted around. That thing that you did, that thing that you chose, is going to be perpetuated on you. You're going to be left to that for the rest of time. And that's one of the reasons why I hesitated earlier when talking about the word punishment, when using the word punishment. Because it isn't exactly a punishment in that kind of... Again, it's not a... Um, I am going to do to you like an opposite thing. I'm going to... It's, it's, it's different. It is a... Um, it is a continuation. Um, yeah, William Coley says, uh, didn't Boethius have some, say something about uh, the greatest punishment for the unrighteous being them getting what they want? Yes, continuing in their sin, yes. For them to have their wickedness rewarded uh, and never to meet justice uh, is the worst thing that could happen to them. Because, yeah, William, what might happen? is that it might just continue indefinitely. And in hell, Dante depicts that continuation as in fact being eternal, right? Um, Francesca is still, she is still the tragic heroine of her tragic story in her own mind. She is still, it's not left her yet. She's still, being buffeted around by that same passion. In her framework, that's tragic, and it's beautiful, and it's sad, right? But her framework is tumbling and buffeting around hell. And when we back up and look at it from further away, it's still tragic, but in a different sense. There is a tragic irony here. Um... And that irony feels to me very much deeper when I see many of the artistic responses to this, which only hear Francesca and don't see the context, right? 
or think again of this as like like the, to see to see Paolo and Francesca as completely tragic heroes of this. That seems to me profoundly to miss the point. Or rather, again, if you do that, you're being sort of tumbled around. Um, but are we sure? Is he really just turning courtly love completely on its head here? Now, somebody was asking about that in the context of... Hang on a second. Um, uh, darn it, I'm forgetting. Um, Carolyn says, so Dante is not romanticizing their story. Oh, sure he is. Absolutely. He's telling it very romantically, right? Um he is making it an excellent example of the courtly love genre. Um, a wonderful, beautiful courtly love story. And then, and but in the context of showing what that does and where that leads you. What is... It's like um, you zoom in. That's why I was doing this before, right? You zoom in and you're just looking at Paolo and Francesca and you're like, that is... So beautiful, right? Look at what their love has brought them, right? To this, you know, yes, with elements of tragedy, they're still suffering for their love, but it's beautiful and at least they love each other, right? And then sort of the camera widens out and you see, you know, that is what, it is that very thing itself. That's the, that's the irony, that, that the, very roman- the very romance of their relationship and of Dante's depiction um, emphasizes the kind of that is the natural tendency of this those who go along with it, those who are overwhelmed by it, those who say oh, Paola and Francesca, that's just so beautiful, I want to be just like that buffet it around okay, that's what you're choosing if that's how you respond then that's what you're choosing if you love these love stories, if this is your ideal Right? That love is irresistible and you should follow your passion because that's the beautiful thing. Even if bad stuff comes of it, it's worth it for love. Okay. That's what gets you to the second circle of hell. That's the point. That's what happens in the second circle of hell. Um, and is it really about... Um, 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 is it really about... Um, turning courtly love on its head? Yep. Yet if you long so much to understand the first root of our love, then I shall tell my tale to you as one who weeps and speaks. One day, to pass the time away, we read of Lancelot, how love had overcome him. We were alone, and we suspected nothing. And time and time again that reading led our eyes to meet and made our faces pale. And yet one point alone defeated us, when we read how the desired smile was kissed by one who was so true a lover, this one who never shall be parted from me, while all his body trembled, kissed my mouth. A Galahalt indeed, that book and he who wrote it too, that day we read no more. And while one spirit said these words to me, the other wept, so that because of pity I fainted as if I had met my death. And then I fell as a dead body falls. We'll come to the fall. Swoon number two already. Dante keels over for the second time in three sections, right? Um, uh, Down goes Dante again. But first, the description. Um, First, um, Galahalt. 
so the version of the Lancelot and Guinevere story that they are reading um, is uh, the it is certainly uh, the French Vulgate uh, version, the Lancelot and Guinevere story from the French Vulgate cycle. Um, it's one of the remember in Maori when he talks about the French books as the French book saith, right? Those books. <laughs> That's what Dante was reading. Dante was also reading Maori's French books. Um, and um, anyway, so that's the story that they're reading. Galahalt was a character in that book who was essentially kind of a go-between. He was the one who encouraged and sort of facilitated their uh, Lancelot and Guinevere's relationship, right? So they're reading the scene when Lancelot and Guinevere have their first sexual encounter, when they first consummate their love. They've been trying to resist it because it's totally inappropriate for lots and lots of reasons, um, but uh, they've been trying to resist it until this one moment, the one moment when he gives her the first kiss. Right. And as the two of them, they have the book there between them. Right. And uh, the uh, they you know, they read the scene together of how his uh, you know, he kissed her smiling mouth. And then Paolo re leans over and kisses her and they read no more that day. Right. So the book, a Galahalt indeed, that book and he who wrote it, too. courtly love literature being explicitly so in the context of their little court so Dante is here writing a courtly love story right the story of Paolo and Francesca um, in which love in his characterization of it here um, they were undone right they were the go-between what facilitated their relationship what brought them to their relationship like Galahalt did to Lancelot and Guinevere was this book and he who wrote it. So the people who write these courtly love stories are panders, go-betweens. Um, and they led to Paolo and Francesca's A, love, and B, destruction. Or you could say A, love, and B, death, and C, eternal damnation. Um, because that is the point uh, of the canto here. And, but again, you might say, gosh, that's an awfully harsh reading of this canto, right? Is it not okay to like the story of Paolo and Francesca at all? Does Dante not want us to have any sympathy with Paolo and Francesca? Is it all this, like, horrible irony? Um, well... Yes, I think it is, uh, but I think that he himself is part of the butt of the joke, in a sense, if it's a joke. Um, it's not exactly a joke, but uh, he is part of the... Uh, uh, he kind of comes in for the criticism here, um, and his fainting is what shows that. Um, remember the last time he fainted. And the conversation that he had with Virgil afterwards. Remember what Virgil says to him right before the gate when he's like, what does that writing in the top of the gate mean? And remember Virgil's slightly non sequitur-ish answer to that, right? It means stop being a baby and let's go, right? Is essentially what Virgil says. It says, it says you must leave cowardice behind, right? And what's the first thing they meet? The cowardly, right? Those who wouldn't commit to anything. And Dante's like, oh, I don't know. And ooh, ah, ooh, should I get into the boat, right? And what happens? Bam. And remember how we were looking at the imagery, the description of him right as he was swimming 
swooning and how that imagery connected him with the souls who are being tormented for not committing, for being cowardly, as Virgil says explicitly, right? He is um, connected to the, like, this is, uh, um, you know, he is, um, uh, he is, he is splattered with this same paint himself, right? And that is even more explicitly true here, right? I mean, look, if there is one place in hell where Dante is going to run into trouble, um, the place where the courtly lovers go, yeah, well, because, uh, yeah, he, um, he's been guilty himself. Um, he is a courtly love poet. And his courtly love poetry has not always been spiritual in nature. Um, he himself was believing in this, right? Um, uh, uh, he himself was a proponent of courtly love. He was one of those writers of courtly love. Um, he connects with Paolo and Francesca. Um, and he... But I do not believe that he wants that Dante the poet means for his depiction of Paolo and Francesca to be a galahalt to anybody, um, to lead his, the readers of the comedy uh, to um, submit to their passions, right? Uh, and, you know, that he's holding this up as a kind of ideal, as some people have depicted it as a kind of, like, a, as if... Paolo and Francesca are being, you know, like tragically and unjustly persecuted, right? But, you know, they're tragic heroes nevertheless. Um, that's, I don't believe at all that that's what Dante is depicting. And I think that his swoon, just as before, his swoon shows his culpability. How does, when he, how does he describe the swoon? And then I fell as a dead body falls. It's like death, Right? My gloss on those last lines is basically him sort of acknowledging if I died, this is where I could end up, right? Like this is, this is, you know, me dead falling. Well, I would fall among these lovers here. This is, this is, this is probably, or, or again, maybe he would be up with the uncommitted if he's too cowardly. Again, both of those things, those are the, those are the things that he most resonates with. Those are the things that, that he's connected to. And I think we can see that connection. So there's so many levels of irony in Canto V, I think. Um, it's, um, uh, it's really tremendously um, complicated. But I really do think, and I say, I, I, I don't want to just, I don't want to just, I'm not trying to say that all of the great geniuses, all of the great writers and artists and everybody who have read this canto and been inspired by the story of Paolo and Francesca and made paintings and poems and operas and everything about this. I'm not saying those were all simps who missed the point, right? I'm not saying they're all morons who didn't get the true uh, uh, insight of the story, which I fortunately have. That's not my point. I, what I would say about them is that they're not really interested so much in the spiritual dimension of this, that they're kind of taking the story out of context. That does seem to be quite the case uh, in, for, in many of these depictions. Uh, not all. 
but um uh uh, but yeah, William, he 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 kind of did have a courtly love thing with Beatrice, right? It's changing. Remember, I said in the in, when I was talking about the Vita Nuova last time, his poetry collection. Um, you know, it's it was like his uh, it was essentially like his greatest hits album. He'd been releasing poems for a long time, and then he published a collection of his own poetry um, with commentary, with a narrative framework attached to it. That's what the Vita Nuova is. Um, and in that context, William, he begins to shift the focus from a purely carnal kind of, I mean, he's, he starts doing this sort of spiritual retcon on a lot of his earlier courtly love poetry, and it's kind of brilliant. Um, but um, the real transformation, Dante's final transformation of the courtly love world, right, of the courtly love thing is happening right now. Like, right now it is happening. In the writing of the comedy it is happening. And when he is united with Beatrice this is a story, this is the the comedy is a, a love story which has a happy ending. Right? But of course, it has a happy, a spiritual happy ending. The happy ending is Beatrice escorting him into the presence of God. That is the happy ending of the love story. Um, he was leaning in that direction already, William. The comedy is where he's really going to... But at the beginning? Nah. No. Um, um, his other poems, his earlier poems that he wrote that he was collecting in the Vita Nuova... What's the goal? What's the point of those? Is he praising love? Is he speaking of love in these same ways? Is he trying to get the lady into bed? I think so. Yes, <laughs> I think so. Um, he's changing that. He's showing that he himself is changing that. Um, he's internally kind of translating all this stuff. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so but so this is this is real personal for him, not just personal for his own experience. But as a writer, he's not only he's not only Paolo and Francesca in his own earlier experience. He's also the writer of the book. He's also the Galahalt, right, who in talking about love the way that he's talked about love has possibly helped to ensnare many other lovers before as well. Ah, anyway. OK. Took a long time to talk about Canto five. Not sorry. OK. Um, then he wakes up again. Upon my mind's reviving, it had closed on hearing the lament of those two kindred, since sorrow had confounded me completely. I see new sufferings, new sufferers surrounding me on every side. Wherever I move or turn about or set my eyes, I am in the third circle, filled with cold, unending, heavy, and a cursed rain. Its measure and its kind are never changed. Two things to notice immediately. Three. Three things to notice immediately. Thing number one. Once again, he wakes up somewhere else, right? When Dante faints, he moves or he is moved. He is transported, right? He fell asleep. Well, fell asleep, fell into his first swoon on the banks of the river, wakes up inside hell, right? Looking down over the edge of the cliff. Um, Second time, he swoons in the second circle. And when he wakes up, he's in the third circle, right? No more buffeting around, no more Paolo and Francesca. So that's one thing that we see that's a a trend now, right, that we can see. 
um, Dante is moved out of the area, that area which connected with him, that area which sort of involved him in some way, um, such that he falls down into a deadly swoon in both places, a swoon which is like death or like sleep. Um, and he is taken out of that situation, not by his own power. He doesn't emerge from it, right? Dante doesn't turn his back on Paolo and Francesca and walk away, right? Um, the other thing that we see is that his own mindset isn't 100% changed, right? He doesn't wake up and be like, whew, oh man, what was I thinking there? I, I, was, I, was, I was a close one, right? No, he doesn't do that at all, right? On hearing the lament of those two kindred, and I think he means kindred to him. Like, they're kindred spirits to him. He's, he found kindred spirits in the second circle of hell, right? He, he gets Paolo and Francesca. He gets them, right? They're just like him. And he sees that. He acknowledges that. And it was sorrow that confounded him completely. He swooned because of sorrow. Sorrow. For the, not disgust, not rejection. Sorrow for them. Um... But now his mind has revived, which I can't help but remember the business about reason. Of course, his mind is revived again and back in charge. Um, when, did, when did his mind go? Well, when he swooned, yes. Uh, possibly also when he was listening to uh, Francesca as well. Um, uh, if he allows his own sorrow and his... If he, he, if he allows himself to get swept up in that narrative and that idea, right? As he's been swept up in the past, um, then he could end up kindred with them indeed, right? Um, but his mind is revived now. Um, yeah. Now, Stephen, yes, this is where we need to differentiate Dante the author from Dante the character. Absolutely. Dante the character depicts himself as not in control. Right. He wasn't in control of his reactions in the second. And again, this is where I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of people take Dante's reaction as license. Right. Like you have Dante's permission to heroicize Paolo and Francesca, to view them as an ideal because Dante clearly has kindred feeling for them. Right. Um, so he's praising them. This is that's about praise of Paolo and Francesca. No. That's Dante the... Yes, Dante the character heroicizes them and connects with them, right? But I think that Dante the author is critiquing Dante the character and showing there but for the grace of God go I, right? There I used to go. There I could go still, right? I am being pulled out of that. Physically, I am pulled out of that. Dante the character is helpless to leave the second circle of hell. He drops down like one dead. And dead people who go to the second circle of hell don't come out, right? Um, but he is he is taken out. He doesn't leave. He is taken out, right? Dante, the author, though, is perfectly aware of that, right? And in fact, orchestrates that. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Brian, I, the, he can't escape the sins of which he may be guilty on his own. He is rescued by an outside power. Yeah, remember, this whole thing's been a rescue mission from the beginning, right? He, it is one way to think about it is that him being rescued from those two places where he collapsed 
is like the rescue that was. It's it's almost like it's just another version of or a different like, like representing on a different level, a different sort of allegorical level, his being taken out of the dark wood in the first place. This whole thing was a rescue mission, right? Um, it was the that was the message that was coming down from Mary to Lucia to Beatrice to Virgil, rescue Dante, right? And we see him being rescued. By whom is he rescued? Presumably the same folks who rescued him before. Um, yeah, now, Carrie, he hasn't explicitly attributed his rescue, like his movement, to anybody. In neither case does he say anything or speculate about how he got to the new spot that he wakes up to find himself in. Um, which is interesting. We'll come back to that at other points, I think. Um, okay. Uh, new sufferings, new sufferers. This circle is an example of one of those places where Dante does not tell us right up front. He doesn't give us that... Like last time, he gave us the kind of key to understand the second circle from the start when he talked about the subjugation of reason to lust or appetite or passion, right? That um, was the key to the whole thing. And he handed us that key at the start. Here... We have no idea what's going on. I see new sufferings, new sufferers surrounding me on every side. Wherever I move or turn about or set my eyes, I am in the third circle, filled with cold, unending, heavy, and accursed rain. Its measure and its kind are never changed. Okay, so we know it's cold, and we know that there's a, a heavy, unending, and accursed rain. No variation in the rain. It's always pouring in the third circle of hell. And it's cold. Cold and rainy. Uh, with a 0% chance of better weather later on. Okay, what more, Dante? Gross hailstones, water gray with filth and snow, come streaking down across the shadowed air. The earth, as it receives that shower, stinks. Over the souls of those submerged beneath that mess is an outlandish, vicious beast, his three throats barking, dog-like, Cerberus. His eyes are blood-red, greasy, black his beard. His belly bulges, and his hands are claws. His talons tear and flay and rend the shades. That downpour makes the sinners howl like dogs. They use one of their sides to screen the other. Those miserable wretches turn and turn. We still don't have any idea what's being punished here. We've not been told yet what the sin is. So, let's look at what we've gotten. Since Dante has decided to withhold that information from us, um, let's instead focus on what he's inviting us to focus on, right? Let's look at the description. So we've got the cold, steady rain, hailstones, water gray with filth, and snow come streaking down across the shadowed air. Everything is dirty. The hailstones are gross. The water is gray with filth. There's nothing bad about the snow, but it's clearly all mixed. This is not beautiful Christmas snow, right? This is uh, uh, this is uh, 
the the worst, uh, most horrible kind of sludgy winter wintry mix. Clearly, um, so coldness, rain, dirtiness, and stink. Right when the earth, when the ground receives the water and the hailstones and the snow, um, reek comes up from the ground. So bad smell, filthy, wet, cold, and Cerberus. So, yeah, what is Cerberus? Cerberus, not a dog. He's dog-like. He has three throats, and he's dog-like. His three throats are barking, dog-like. But he's not a dog. Um, He's got a beard, for one thing. Um, His hands are claws. Not his... It's not that he has long claws on his paws. He's got hands with claws. Cerberus is, and he's going to be called in a few lines, a demon. Like Charon was a demon, or Charon was a demon. Um... We've so far we've only met demons and shades. I think that's true. We haven't met anybody else besides demons and shades, have we? And Cerberus seems to be a demon. He seems to be a humanoid demon, as far as I can tell, with the beard and the belly and the hands. Um but uh but he is dog like and he's got the three throats. Here is where we seem to be getting an example of, like, the truth behind the pagan story. Again, the pagans were very wise, right? They perceived many things that really are, but they didn't always fully understand it. What they lacked was context, right? So, when the ancient myth-makers and storytellers told the story of the three-headed, you know, canine guardian of the underworld... They told that which was true in a sense, but they didn't fully get the whole thing, right? Um, what they were kind of discerning stories of, or like hearing rumors of, was this demon named Cerberus with his three throats and his dog-like bark. So is he kind of like a dog? Yes. Is he kind of like a guardian of the underworld? Yeah. Yeah, you could see why they would say that, right? But, but they didn't have the whole picture. Right, and here we see the real story, and we see him raking and rending the shades. Um, yeah, Tomas, I agree that the, uh, Tomas says the demons seem to be how the creatures uh, uh, from the pagan myths are described. <clears throat> many of them, yes, many, especially of the like the monsters of the pagan myths, yes. Um, but many of the people in pagan myths are shades, are treated as if they were historical, essentially. Um, uh, remember, we've got Semiramis from ancient legend. Uh, we've got Cleopatra. We've got Helen. We've got Achilles. And we've got, uh, I almost said Troilus, not Troilus, Tristan, um, all together there in, uh, in Dido. Right, so again, creatures of people of myth, legend, story, um, uh, ancient, less ancient, uh, 
much less ancient, right, um, all mingled together. So far, we have seen these sort of monstrous figures uh, as as demons. But again, he's um, so he is kind of giving us the true story, but he's not giving us a true story which merely contradicts what people like Virgil say. Virgil described Cerberus. Um, it was a, a big moment. They had to get past Cerberus because he's the guard dog of the underworld. Um, that downpour makes the sinners howl like dogs. So the sinners are also howling like dogs. This is, again, contributes to the whole canine association with this region, right? And we do see, Carolyn, you're right, we get um, active sufferers, active punishment, as you say, right? Cerberus is tearing and raking at them with his claws. His talons tear and flay and rend the shades. And they're lying on one side and then flipping over to the other side. Those miserable wretches turn and turn, trying to screen one of their sides with the other as the hail is coming down and as Cerberus is raking them with his claws. Okay. Still not obvious what was the problem here. When Cerberus, the great worm, noticed us, he opened wide his mouths, showed us his fangs. There was no part of him that did not twitch. My guide opened his hands to their full span, plucked up some earth, and with his fists filled full, he heard it, hurled it straight into those famished jaws. Just as a dog that barks with greedy hunger will then fall quiet when he gnaws his food, intent and straining hard to cram it in, so were the filthy faces of the demon Cerberus transformed. After he'd stunned the spirits so, they wished they were deaf. Now, Aeneid fans among you will remember that uh, Cerberus, when Aeneas and... Uh, I said Virgil. When Aeneas and his guide, who is the Sibyl... Um, meet Cerberus. She has to placate Cerberus. They're in danger from Cerberus. And she takes a cake and tosses the cake to Cerberus. She's drugged a cake, basically. She tosses the sop to the cake to Cerberus, and he eats it, uh, and he falls asleep. And so they get past Cerberus that way. Um, they see the demon Cerberus, who, yes, is called a worm. And, Gerald, I don't understand that either. The great worm. Um, is he like a dragon? Uh, uh, no, I don't think so. I think the word for worm he uses here is the one that means worm, like in like earthworm. But it might mean, I mean, well, Gerald, let me put it this way. If by calling him a great worm, and I don't know why he does, but if by calling him a great worm he is attempting to connect Cerberus with dragons, I don't understand why. Um, I don't see much in Dante's depiction of Cerberus here that like fits in with much of my own um, understanding of like medieval dragon traditions. I don't see anything from medieval dragon traditions that fit. Now, maybe there's 
stuff that I'm missing. Nothing could be more likely, but I really don't uh, really know. Um, uh, now, Mary, that's really interesting. Um, so, William, the uh, W-Y-R-M spelling, that's an Anglo-Saxon thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it's really, it's really uh, that distinction, I am pretty confident, does not work in Italian. Um, but, um, yeah, um, I think... I think Mary's interpretation here seems to me the most plausible. Um, yes, Sarah, exactly. The Italian word is vermo. Yeah, vermo. Like like vermin. Yeah, ex I, I think it means worm. Um, not dragon, but worm. Not even snake, but worm. Um, but I like Mary's theory. Mary's theory is like a parasitic worm. Like a tapeworm, basically. That, I think, is really interesting. Um, Cerberus is the great tapeworm of the underworld. That, that I can get behind. Um, that makes more sense of the worm reference than I've ever done before, Mary. I like that reading. Um, and how is he appeased? How is he, how is he uh, quietened? Um not by a cake brought from the overworld, which is what the Sybil does, right? She 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 packed a cake to toss to Cerberus, which she had prepared. Um, Virgil, in Dante, just picks up clots of mud, the stinking mud of the ground, which is covered with the sludge and the dirty rain and the gross hailstones, and he's he packs it together and he chucks this wad of filth into Cerberus's jaws. And he uh, gnaws his food with eager hunger. And we get that another wonderful epic simile there. Just as a dog that barks with greedy hunger will then fall quiet when he gnaws his food, intent and straining hard to cram it in. Written like somebody who had actually seen dogs eat. So were the filthy faces of the demon Cerberus transformed. Um, yeah, so, um, and Sarah Duncan, I agree, it does seem odd to mention that he had stunned the spirits, uh, after mentioning that he had quiet, quietened rather than before. I agree. Okay, so Cerberus's, the greedy hunger with which Cerberus eats the muck off the ground is the only hint we've really gotten, the most explicit hint, I should say, we've gotten so far as to what exactly is being punished in this circle. And I to him, it is perhaps your, so this, he's talking to Chaco, um, the uh, guy that he, so one of the, one of the, one of the dudes sits up and talks to him. And I to him, it is perhaps your anguish that snatches you out of my memory. Um, Chaco, when he sits up, says, hey, you were alive when I was alive. Or like, you know, you were alive before I was dead. Uh, and Dante's like, sorry, not placing you here, right? And I to him, it is perhaps your anguish that snatches you out of my memory so that it seems that I have never seen you. But tell me who you are, you who are set in such a dismal place, such punishment. 
If other pains are more, none's more disgusting. And he to me, Your city, one so full of envy that its sack has always spilled, that city held me in the sunlit life. The name you citizens gave me was Chaco. And for the damning sin of gluttony, as you can see, I languish in the rain. And I, a wretched soul, am not alone, for all of these have this same penalty for this same sin. And he said nothing more. Okay. Finally, the sin is revealed. And it's revealed, it's confessed by one of the sinners himself, right? By Chaco, this contemporary, our first contemporary Italian that we're having a conversation with here, right? And a Florentine, moreover, right? Um, he is from Florence, Dante's own city. It's late. I wanted to get to the reveal, but that took a long time. Let's stop here. Um, we'll finish off gluttony. I, I, I don't have too much more about the gluttonous. We'll finish off gluttony and we'll come back. Didn't get so far as I wanted to tonight, but again, not sorry for spending more time on Canto 5. Um, at least I left Canto 5 behind, which many have not. Anyway, um, and I didn't even pass out, so that was good. Thanks, everybody, for joining me today. Uh, back next week for more. I, we, I should Next week should be fine. I wasn't sure if I was going to do this week or not, but we decided to go ahead, and that's all, I'm glad we did. Um, so see you guys again next week uh, as we continue on forward. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.